The Working Artist Project is brought to you by Second Line Arts Collective. Learn how you can support at secondlinearts.org. We're creating a platform for those who are curious. One that tells the story from the artist's perspective. Moments in time, captured from the innovators who are reshaping dance, music, theater, and the visual arts. This is The Working Artist Project. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Working Artist Project. Today is January 3rd, 2022. Happy New Year's, Darian. How you doing? Oh, Greg, happy new year, everybody. Happy new year. I'm good. I'm glad to be back, man. We took about a month off, which was, uh, which was much needed. Much needed. Yeah, bro. Every Monday night for about four weeks, Greg, I, I, I went to sleep at eight o'clock. Can you believe it? I can believe it because I did the same exact thing and it was marvelous. I have to say, I just, (laughs) in my, in my old age, I have become very fond of going to bed early. (laughs) That's right. Hey, if y'all don't know, t- tonight me and Greg, well, at least me, I'm I'm the old old man on the show tonight, and we we got a very special guest, uh, Mr. Benny Banak, all the way from Pittsburgh, and I, you know, Pittsburgh is actually a cool place. I don't know if you've been there, Greg. You been over there? I can't remember. It's, it's I've been it's to so cooler. many places, I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> it's cooler than it sounds, man. It's it's, it's actually kind of beautiful, man. But, uh, hey, you got to you got to throw props up to uh, to Pittsburgh, though. You know, Roy Eldridge, uh, Art Blakey, there's some cats from Pittsburgh. And uh, of course, we're going to talk to uh, to Benny tonight. And, you know, I, I think uh, Benny comes from a musical family that has made a big impact in the Pittsburgh area. So I'm excited to uh, get a chance to hear more about that great city. Yeah, bro. When I was reading about his family, I was, you know, it, it always makes me think about New Orleans when cats come from a musical family, because it's kind of rare you know, to hear that anywhere else, you, you know what I mean? Like three generations of musicians. That's crazy. All but, I have to say is this, when I listen to Benny play, I think to myself, damn, that motherfucker's killing. He must come from a musical family. <laughs> <laughs> Benny got the cheat codes y'all. So look, without further ado, let's welcome Benny Banak to the working artist project. What up, Benny? Hey, you guys, uh, you guys hear me? What's going on? Yeah, we hear you, baby. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, thank you, thank you for the uh, the Pittsburgh plug. You know, I'm I'm very uh, I'm very prideful about the lineage, the history in Pittsburgh. So I like what you, I, I dig what you said, man. It's like for for kind of the size of a city it is, and you know, for kind of the scope of, of where it is in Western Pennsylvania, there's actually a lot there. You know, there's there's a lot of a lot of heart and and a lot of culture there for you know, kind of being like a smaller sized city, you know, and, and a lot of cats did come from Pittsburgh. So, you know, I'm, I'm always repping it. As a matter of fact, I got my man, Ben Roethlisberger, you know, his final home game is uh, I'm going to be watching that after the interview. So hopefully people listen back and uh, you know, the Steelers got the win. We'll see. (laughs) Didn't Ben Roethlisberger ride a motorcycle without a helmet? uh yeah oh yeah. man that was okay. a good good 15 years ago or so so uh yeah he had a lot of transgressions in his youth but really tonight we're just celebrating his uh play on the field so oh, oh, okay all right we're not gonna get into any of that okay. it's a family show it's a family show the family show <laughs> hey man i gotta I, I gotta i got a theory once an idiot always an idiot man that's that's all i'm gonna say about that yeah you might be right you might be right you know 
we you, we can love the warrior without you know loving uh loving them off the arena you know oh man Dilla, we we jazz musicians so that we we know a lot about that man that's true <laughs> wow 2022 is gonna be real shit <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! But Benny, man, let's start. Let's start at the top, man. So you're from, you're from Pittsburgh. So what, what what was it like growing up and um, kind of getting your feet wet as a musician in Pittsburgh? Yeah, I mean, it it in many respects, it really prepared me for you know the life that I would have in New York City. And uh, I always say I feel like I got a head start, and I was very fortunate in that way because you know my summer job growing up, other other friends of mine would like you know, work at the YMCA or work at the driving range or work in a movie theater. And my summer job was, you know, playing club dates with my dad, you know, playing weddings and playing some private parties and, and, you know, occasionally getting to play, play clubs and, and whatnot. And I was kind of in that gigging mode, like hanging in the horn section with the cats from the time I was like 10, 11, 12 years old. Um, so I really kind of was always the young guy and was always surrounded by older musicians and, and my dad and his buddies. And, you know, that taught me to kind of, you know, just shut up and follow their lead and try and be humble and, and learn from those guys. And by the time I went to the Manhattan School of Music that after high school, that was what brought me to New York City. You know, I had a little bit of decorum. I knew a little bit about how to conduct myself if I go out to a jam session or if I'm on a gig in a big band with some older musicians. And, you know, I, I felt like I kind of had some on the job training before I set foot in New York. And, you know, we could have a whole conversation about, you know, what that kind of means for for young people coming into the music and, you know, some of the kind of unwritten rules and, and kind of etiquette on, on how to conduct yourself. You know, I feel very fortunate. I kind of got a head start on those lessons, you know, what's, what's the one thing you learned from, from hanging or what's like one important thing that you learned from hanging with those, those cats in that generation that um, helped you, man. Um, well, you know, one thing that is really big in my, in my household so growing up on the bandstand with my dad was that, because we were playing a lot of club dates, you know, we were playing private parties, we were playing weddings, we were playing things like that. You know, it it is, you want to create music on the highest level, but, you know, playing somebody's wedding at a country club, it is not art music, you know, <laughs> exclusively, right? It's like, you have to read the room. And if you're losing people on the dance floor, you got to be thinking while the song is going on, what's the next song? We got to get people back on the dance floor. They haven't served the, you know, the salads yet. We can't, we, we can't lose them. You know, so there's always this element of not pandering to an audience, but just being aware of the audience's experience. Mm. And that's something that I think has served me well as I've become a band leader in my own right. And that was something that I kind of just, I guess, got through osmosis, you know, observing that as a young person. And I can't shake it. You know, I'm, I'm in New York City and I play at a jam session at Smalls every week. And there's a part of me that wants to just be super cool and act like a cool jazz musician. And then there's a part of me that just can't help it and has to, you know, scat on a blues at the end of the night. Like, I just I can't I can't take that part of who I am out of the music. So, you know, I don't try and quiet it. I, I try and just be myself. Yeah, that's dope, man. I, you know, coming from the South, you know, I'm from Mississippi and that group, that that group element of music is very apparent in the South. And sometimes you lose that 
up here in the Northeast. So it's beautiful for me to hear you say that, you know, like I, you, you, I hate when I go to a concert and people are just playing at me, you know, right. versus, versus participating with me with the audience. You know what I mean? It's like if you went, you with your lady, you know, you don't want to just be there by yourself. You, you don't want to be so right. into what you're doing that she's not entertained or your, your significant other's not entertained, man. So it's super important to, to have. It's like a, that symbiotic relationship. You know what I mean? And some people sometimes like, you know, it's like that Louis Armstrong thing where Cass was like, oh man, this dude is, is like, what's he doing? He's shucking and jiving, but actually he was bringing the people into what, to his world, to his right. universe, right? And that's, that's kind of what you do. You do something special too, man. I think not a lot of people are into like the crooner energy, right? If, am I right about that? I feel like that's kind of, you get some big inspiration from people in that idiom. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think uh, there's some elements of kind of that character, you know, people think of, you know, like Dean Martin kind of swaggering around on stage, you know, or obviously Frank Sinatra, but, you know, there is a little element of, you know, you can have the same dialogue, the same discussion as everyone's talking about James Bond, you know, how like uh, Daniel Craig's retiring and they're like, well, do we need, you know, do we need to mix up James Bond is, do we have to have another British white guy who, you know, makes quips and, you know, drinks cocktails and it, you know, kind of glorifying this sort of uh, dated kind of idea of, of this type of entertainer, you know, and I think growing up at the time that I did, you know, Harry Connick Jr. was really big on the scene. It was like before Michael Buble came around, but obviously seeing the kind of success that he's had commercially, you know, and seeing, you know, early 2000s when he came about was discovered by David Foster and, you know, like seeing that world while simultaneously, you know, studying from Sean Jones and wanting to play like Freddie Hubbard and wanting to, you know, play in a jazz club, you know, having both of those worlds kind of exist simultaneously for me. I like to think that I have only taken like the good parts of the kind of crooner energy, you know, minus the like smarminess or, you know, the parts that are cancelable in 2022, you know, I'm not trying to romanticize any of the, you know, kind of stickier sides of that thing, but you know, I, I, I can't help it. I, I like to wear a nice suit and have a glass of whiskey in my hand while I sing, you know? Yeah, you're so. a comedian too, man. I see. <laughs> you know, is that something, is that something that you developing seriously or is that just like, you just naturally a funny motherfucker? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I think that it, the way that it comes naturally is that as we, we get older and we get more comfortable in who we are, on stage and off stage, more of your personality comes out, right? It gets amplified. And I definitely had my my time, you know, in New York City in every scene that I've been a part of where there's a time and a place. And if you're the new guy on the block and you're coming in and you're trying to, you know, showboat and sing and, and you know, smile and crack all these jokes and everything, you know, it's you, you kind of have to earn that, I feel like. And, you know, I had some lessons when I was younger where, for example, I remember being in this trumpet competition. Um, I forget which one because I basically won all of them. So it's hard <laughs> for me to remember which one. Um, I think <laughs> not the big one, though. Uh -huh. Not not the monk. Marquise, yeah. Marquise got me on that one. He, he was the best man that day for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I remember I was in one of these competitions and, you know, 
for lack of a better word, however it broke out that year, it was like the, the third time I had done the competition. And the other two times, there was definitely an older cat that that dealt with the trumpet way stronger than I did. And whatever place I came in, I deserved it. But this year, you know, I was like on the older side because it was my third time. It was obvious that I was like far and away the, the baddest cat. So I almost blew it because the judge's comments were like, you know, not even about what I was playing, but talking about my attitude and kind of like that I was just overdoing it. Like I was too confident. I was too comfortable. I was talking in between songs and it was supposed to be like a 12 minute set. And I was treating it like, you know, it was the late set, you know, and I was just talking to my friends, you know, and it was like, basically like I wasn't treating that situation with the kind of, you know, integrity that it deserves. So, you know, that was a lesson learned, you know, when to dial it back, when, when it's cool to kind of let the guard down and crack some jokes and bust on the guys in the band or, you know, do some crowd work. And when it's time to be serious, you know, and take care of the music. And that still is something that's I, a balance that I try and find, you know, to this very day. And there are some musicians who play with me who I, uh, I, they will remain nameless, but there's definitely, you know, one cat in particular that if I'm like talking too much in between songs, I'm like doing stand up. He'll like come in with the playoff music. Like he'll just like start playing the next song, get the rhythm section to play a vamp to kind of just be like, all right, bro, wrap it up. Let's get back to the music. <laughs> you know? I mean, I think that's an important part of the entire package too. Cause I think a lot of us forget that we are ultimately putting on a show and you know, the, the, the moments in between songs are still part of the show. And it's, it's not an opportunity to like tune up and take a five minute break and like, you know, think in your head, what tune you're going to play. So I get, I mean, I always thoroughly enjoy laughing. I enjoy, really? you know, thinking about shit. So I think that's definitely something that, you know, for them, I think people could incorporate into their music. Of course you want to be appropriate with the time and place, but Hey, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Live by uh, the sword, die by the sword, you know? Yeah. Well, you, you were mentioning a bunch of competitions and things like that. And and I, when I was reading up on your bio, I, I read that, you know, you did partake in the monk competition. Uh, you also recently did the Sarah Vaughn uh, competition. And I was wondering what, what your thoughts were on maybe like the importance, those types of uh, opportunities and exposures played in uh where you are now and in, in, in kind of getting your name out there yeah i mean i was fortunate to always have teachers that uh encouraged me you know i i remember at the time i was really really lucky in pittsburgh sean jones was happened to be teaching at duquesne a school in pittsburgh he was living in pittsburgh at the time i was in like junior high and this was when he was playing with Lincoln Center. He had just put out his first record with Mac Ave, and he was really kind of like had burst onto the scene. And it felt kind of crazy to me that this world-class trumpet player just happened to be, you know, teaching at a small school in Pittsburgh. And, you know, what a great resource for me. And he was always the one that was saying, hey, here's this summer program at Vail. You should, I'm going to recommend you for this. Hey, here's this competition with the, you know, International Trumpet Guild, you know, check this out. And, you know, at that time I had my own doubts, you know, I was still in my bubble in Pittsburgh. So I was gigging around the city in Pittsburgh, but I didn't know, you know, I hadn't met a lot of other people my age that were that serious about the music. I didn't know where I stood, certainly. And he always, uh, always was saying, man, just send in a tape, just send in a tape. The hardest part of an audition for anything is, you know, 
the actually the part where you have to audition, you know, after that, it's out of your hands. You never know. So that really was imparted on me. And it was like, I always send in a tape, you know, and I had no shame about it too. If there was a competition that, you know, if you came in second or third, they let you do it the next year. I'd show up three years in a row, you know, until they, until I could win it. You know, I, I, cause I feel like those moments make you stronger too, you know, as, is is a, is a player and as an artist, just being in those kind of pressure situations, you know, it's like the idea of, of pressing pressure on the piece of coal, turning it into a diamond, you know? Yeah. And I, and I, I'm a competitive cat. So I also, you know, relished that kind of aspect of it. Motherfuckers are going down. Right. <laughs> yeah, I know. I feel like you're never supposed to say that. You're just like, Oh, Kumbaya, you know, music, it's all love. It's not a competition. No, you want to win if you're in a competition. Like when I won the Caruso competition and I knew I was getting $10,000 when I was 21 years old, I was like hyperventilating backstage. That was the coolest thing that ever happened to me, you know? And, and, and like you said, um, every opportunity to be in front of more people to, you know, not just to talk about prize money or things like that, but, you know, the judges for all of these competitions are always people that are big figures in, in the music. And, you know, it's just another opportunity to get your name out there. So why not? You know, that's what I say. I was just working with a kid back in Pittsburgh a, a week ago. Um, I was back there for Christmas and we did a lesson and he was preparing for some audition. And I was like, man, just send in a tape. You know, I was just echoing that, that those words that were given to me. Hmm. Yeah, bro. That's powerful, man, man. I'm, I'm sitting here listening to you, Benny. And, and, and I want to ask you this question, man. You got to answer this truthfully. And I, <laughs> first, first, I want to say this, Greg, all trumpet players are the same. All these motherfuckers, all they do is try to fight <laughs> each other. But that, everybody listening, every trumpet player is the same. <laughs> they pretend to be humble. No, not, not at all. It's no, because no, every instrument has a personality. People, my people who listen to this got to know. So yeah, I agree with that. I appreciate, I appreciate you speaking. Well, for you me. guys, yeah. you guys know, you guys know too many trumpet players. I can't, I can't lie. But man, what do you, what do you, what do you think? makes you unique like why how are you different than every other person on this planet wow well that's 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 a really deep question but i i i appreciate that question i mean musically to you know to put it in the most brass brass tax brass get it uh to you know to get down to brass tax in that way i would say playing wise you know i've always been attracted to harmony within kind of like bebop and post-bop language. So one of the things that younger players, that people that want to come take a lesson or people that have checked me out a little bit, they always say, man, you have so much language. You have so much language, you know, like playing, you know, standard tunes, you know, playing harmony over that. Just having a, a, a deep kind of pool of vocabulary to pull from where I'm not playing the same, you know, diminished like every time over the same part of the tune. You know, and um, I do kind of pride myself on that because that's a product of just putting in work, right? And doing a lot of transcribing. Every time I would transcribe a solo, that's two or three licks that, you know, I'm now kind of throwing into my gumbo mixed up with everything else that is an influence. So, you know, I don't want to play the same licks. I want to, I want to have a hundred options, you know. I kind of talk about improvising as like speaking a language and you know, the more words in your vocabulary, the more expressive you can become, you know, if you only know how to say five things, it's going to get pretty redundant, you know? So 
what makes me different may, maybe in that way i really you know i try to really have a lot of language you know but you know beyond beyond just kind of the like x's and o's of the playing i would say one thing that i think i try to do on my trumpet is to be you know expressive and and sound like a voice and i think because i sing too you know those things really kind of feed into each other so i don't ever want to feel like if i'm playing a melody on the trumpet that there are just notes that are kind of like midi notes you know like don't ever have me play a quarter note and just have it be like just hit a button it's like Burr. there's always some way to color a note because if we're a singer you're always you know you're always being expressive so you know i i, I like to think that there's some humanity in my trumpet playing you know it's not robotic and how much of that comes from the fact that you're also a fantastic singer? Is that like a translation of the voice or how does that work? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I think it really is, you know, um, because, you know, things that I scat and the way I phrase as a singer and listening to a lot of singers play melodies influences the way I play the trumpet and vice versa, you know, and, and I always tell students too, even if you don't have, you know, the world's greatest gift from God, as far as a singing voice to still check out singers and check out the way they phrase, especially instrumentalists like guitarists or pianists or instruments where it's not a wind instrument. And as a, as a vocalist, you have no resistance, right? So if you're playing a wind instrument, like you're playing the trumpet, you're getting resistance. So theoretically that air pushing back, you know, you're going to have more in your tank then if you're just singing outright, you know, there's nothing stopping that air from coming out. So hearing the way a singer phrases, you know, dealing with that breath control is really valuable for all instrumentalists, you know? You know what, man? This is a great time for us to hear you sing, man. We're going to see if you're as good as you say you are, right? Oh, man. no. All right, let me just turn on the auto-tune here. <laughs> I have a plug-in. I have a Zoom plug-in. Oh, hell no. Nah. We don't do that over here, y'all. <laughs> So, so th this is this is a track from you sent us a track over from your um, from your latest record, Gravy Waltz. Gravy Waltz. Pretty mama's in the kitchen this glorious day. Smell the gravy simmering nearly half a mile. Lady morning glory, I say good morning to you. Chirpy little chickadee told me that my baby was true. Well, she really ran to get her frying pan when she saw me coming. Gonna get a taste before it goes to waste. This honeybee's humming. Mr. Weeping Willow, I'm through with all of my faults. Cause my baby's ready to do the gravy.
dig into this for one second too. Man, I teach at an arts high school and one of like the, the biggest hurdles that I have as a teacher is convincing students that you have to learn vocabulary in order to improvise. Mm. And, and when Darian asked you the question about what makes you unique, you responded by learn like, you know, I learn vocabulary, I'm learning language, I'm transcribing. So like, do you, you I, like what makes that unique is when, again, like how do you get over the, the, the self-doubt or the, the idea that like by learning licks or learning solos, that is actually how you create a unique vocabulary versus like regurgitating some shit someone else played. Right. I mean, I think that is, uh, that's something that kind of makes me chuckle when I, when I hear, you know, younger musicians, which also it sucks that I'm I'm saying younger musicians because that implies that I'm old now. Join the club, like join the club, man. It's all, but, it's all good. But you know, when these damn kids start showing up to these jam sessions and they can't play, uh, no, it's like, um, you know, I, I understand, I get sort of like the idea of the artist where you want to say something unique, right? You want to have a unique voice. That's all you ever hear when you're, you know, in master classes growing up with jazz is like, well, you have to develop your own voice, develop your own voice. You know, you have to find your own thing. Right. And I know, you know, young people that would say, Hey, transcribe this Freddie Hubbard thing or transcribe this Clifford Brown thing. And they'd be like, well, I don't want to play licks, man. I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't want to play licks. Like I'm trying to say something that's never been said before. And, you know, I just, I, I feel like that's all good and well. And of course, you know, we, we want, we want to do those things, but it's kind of like, you got to walk before you can run, you know? And, and if it goes back to what I was talking about, you think of these, these words like vocabulary, right. And you think of improvising as a language, it's like, you got to learn your grammar first, you know, you have to learn where the, where the adverbs go and where the nouns go. And it's, you know, you can learn these kind of things. Theoretically, you can learn them out of a book. You can, you know, visualize them and say, okay, D minor seven flat five to G seven sharp nine flat 13. All right. So I guess I could use this scale like that works, but it just, to me, it seems like the most direct streamlined process is just straight from the source. You know, if you want to sound good on a blues, go, you know, go learn someone solo that sounds good on a blues, you know? And then when you have all of this language at your disposal, then you can start the editing and filtration process and you can say, hey, what if I took this thing that I learned from Lee Morgan and I like retrograded it? What if I did it backwards, you know, or, hey, so here's this Woody Shaw thing. What would that sound like if I like played that in diminished, you know, going up and down in minor thirds? And now it's like now you're playing something that is, you know, that is you, but it is informed from from somewhere else, you know. So I've also never been uh, never been afraid to sound like my influences and and sound like my heroes. You know, I've one of my artistic goals has never been completely reinvent the wheel and say something on the trumpet, bring the language of jazz trumpet further than it's ever gone before. You know, and I have so much respect for for people that that is one of their artistic goals. For me, it's that that is not you know, my North star. If for me, it's just like, sound great all the time, you know, like just make great music, take great solos, serve the band, serve the music. I'm not concerned with whether people view me as, you know, a revolutionary or not. Hey man, that's great advice. <laughs> sound good. <laughs> <laughs> just sound you know? good. Just sound good. I mean, you know, Benny, I, I, this, this notion of finding oneself is always 
perplexed and annoyed the shit out of me. <laughs> Just because, like, I don't really believe that that's true, you know? And, and I, a lot of times I think about the people who, who paid, played the biggest impact in my life. Like, for instance, Ellis or, or Al, like, they, they never seem to have to find themselves. Like, they just were them or Miles, people like that. You just have to step into who you are and not really give a fuck what anybody else thinks. You know what I mean? Because one day worms is going to eat all of us, dog. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. Just just be you and shed. Shut the fuck up. That's how I feel about life. Yeah, right. 2022, uh, y'all. <laughs> pandemic out here, dog. <laughs> yeah, you know. I do kind of feel like that sometimes. I'm like, okay, like, you know, you're searching. You're searching for something. And, you know, you're searching for playing the right chords to this song right now, bro. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, you know, it's cool if you want to, like, you know, find something that's never been played before. But, like, you should probably not fold on this tune while you're at it, you know? Yeah, like, it's cool. It's it's one of these, like, uh, I don't know why there's, like, this myth in jazz that, like, you got to play something that's never been played before in order to play a good solo. Like, no, just sound good. That's all That's all anyone wants is just to listen to the music and be like, damn, that sounds good. Right. And, you know, <laughs> I remember having this conversation um, with, with John Riley, the drummer from the Vanguard Orchestra, who was one of my professors at the Manhattan School of Music, and he got to play some with Art Farmer. And, you know, he said one of the things he asked Art Farmer about was like, hey, you know, man, it's so incredible that at the time you were coming up, you and all your contemporaries, like you guys all came up at the same time that you sounded all just completely unique and so different, like you and Blue Mitchell and Donald Byrd and Lee Morgan and Clifford Brown and Freddie, like all of you guys just sound like you, you, you know, you've created this, your own branch from which other people have, have studied. How did that happen? And Art Farmer was like, oh man, yeah. I mean, we all pretty much just wanted to play like Fats Navarro, you know? And so that's crazy, but it's, it's really deep because it's like, everyone is going to be unique just inherently, just because you're you and there's only one you in the history of everything, you know, so don't get caught up in being like, oh, I don't want to sound too much like this guy or that guy. It's like, look at that. Look at the way, you know, six kind of like goats of 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 jazz trumpet were all kind of like drinking from the same well. And they still ended up sounding completely different and unique, you know? Hey, man, I want to ask you a question. I'm going cha- I'm to I'm change the subject, man. Hey, man, how, how much you pay Christian McBride to be on your record? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it was really pretty easy. I sent one email. I said, boop. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, it's been redacted. I'm sorry. <laughs> jazz ki- jazz house kids are not allowed to, no, right. not allowed at liberty to speak about. No, you know what? I'll, I'll, I will tell you this. I won't say the exact number, but I will say that Christian was uh, a huge, you know, he really did me a solid and I was fortunate on that record to have Ulysses playing drums, Ulysses Owens Jr., who has been like a real, a huge mentor figure to me, a, a real big brother musically. Um, and he also produced that record. So when I expressed to him, you know, I want to, I want McBride on the record, Ulysses really just walked me through it. He said, well, if McBride likes you, you know, you're going to throw out a number. And as long as it's not insulting, he's going to say yes. And he's going to do you that one as a solid because he, he knows what lending his name to something can do. And he, you know, wants to support you. Then if you come back and ask him to play something a second time, you know, then it's like the friend discount, the favor is over. So, you know, I haven't, I haven't finished that part of the prophecy. We don't, I don't know exactly, 
But I will say that, you know, getting a chance to do an album with someone like that, it really makes you understand why they are where they are, you know, mm-hmm. just, just the level of professionalism from the attitude from the 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. on a record date and, you know, disarming everyone, cracking jokes at the right time, focusing at the right time, not making any mistakes, reading music perfectly, you know, just just kind of like 10 out of 10 in every category you could possibly fathom, um, you know, really makes you appreciate kind of what that greatness is, you know. And then on top of that, you know, to know that he's, kind of doing me a favor by doing the record and you know lending his talents to that project and you know wanting to support you know younger cats coming up so i can't i can't say enough about that and you know ulysses also really was instrumental in kind of guide me through that absolutely that's beautiful I think something that like we darren both both darren and i really try to instill in the students that we work with um is that you know, we are artists, but we also are running businesses. And so as you're talking about working with Christian and someone like Ulysses Owens, um, how much of that decision to have those cats on the record is a musical decision? And how much of that is a business decision? I mean, that that that's a good question. It's, it's something that, you know, that maybe doesn't get said out loud as much, but is something that is a part of every every calculation when you're working on a project, you know, and you you hope that there's a perfect marriage of the two where, you know, obviously in the case of someone like Christian McBride, I want him to play on the record, not because, you know, he might talk about it on Jazz Night in America, but because he's the bass player that, you know, I've looked up to my entire life and I wanted to have that musically, you know, but there, there are always kind of certain situations and whether it's recordings or in bands, you know, and one of the, one of the amazing favorite things that some musicians like to do when they're sitting around talking shit is, you know, be like, why do you know, he didn't call me for this gig. Why'd he call that cat? Or, you know, he's only calling that cat because X, Y, Z, you know? Uh, and of course I never do that at all. I never talk shit at all, you know, <laughs> just an absolute, just angel. And I just love everyone. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like I said, I, there, there are some times where, you know, it can't hurt to, you know, maybe not have that be the loudest voice in your head, but also just to to be aware of it, you know, to think, hey, who's someone that I want to work with, you know? Oh wow, like this 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 person works a lot as a side man. Like, what? Who are they playing with? What are they doing? Hey, you know what? I have a gig that needs a second horn. Maybe I'll call that person, you know. Maybe I'll foster that relationship. Now, is it because you think they're a great player? Well, yeah, sure. But is it also because, you know, you're hoping that you can maybe pick their brain a little bit or they'll hear, get the chance to hear you and in turn, they might call you for something or recommend you for something? Sure. You know, and I think in our business where, you know, people aren't looking at resumes of where you got your degree from or, you know, looking at LinkedIn to decide how you get a gig. It really is based on, you know, people's kind of opinions of you and how how other people you've worked with. So that just is kind of part of networking. You know, you don't have to be ashamed to think, hey, it might uh, be in my best interest to give this guy a call. You know, can't hurt. Isn't it funny, man? You know, when my, when, when the cat see you at Wheaties, you know, 
You get Michael <laughs> Jordan on or Kobe on the box. You don't think twice about it. It's like these this Wheaties, you know, it's okay. But if I put Mike on the cover, you know, right? It, it's kind of the same thing. Like we we gotta as musicians, jazz musicians especially, we kind of gotta get out of that whole vibe of like, you know, self sabotage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If I have access to Winton or somebody with, with some clout, Cecile McLaurin, some some you know the top tier, why not get them on a song or two if it's gonna get a thousand more eyes on my record, you know? Right. And I mean, I think where you don't, where, where you can run into trouble is if you kind of, like I said, you let that be the guiding force and you say, Hey, you know, let me get this cat that maybe is the last person that would fit on this tune. Or, you know, if it just is purely, you know, kind of like a, like a cop out sellout kind of thing. I think people see through that, Absolutely. you know, but, but that's why you want to try and thread, thread that needle where, you know, if obviously you're talking about someone like Winton or Cecile or Christian McBride, you know, you're getting the best of both worlds, but you know, it's just all criteria that, that we all like it or not have to consider because, you know, we're, we're all kind of advocating for ourselves out here, you know, so don't be shy, you know, you gotta, you gotta scrap and claw. And sometimes that means, you know, putting your business hat on, in addition to your musician hat, you know, for your business, like what's the, the thing that cha- is the most challenging for you from a business perspective? Hmm. You know what? I, 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 the thing that I struggle with the most, believe it or not, is, is knowing my, my worth, uh, with like booking shit, knowing how much money to ask for. And I, I'm su- such a people pleaser, you know, it's like such a, such a cornerstone, of who I am is that I feel guilty anytime I hit up a club owner or a promoter or a booker, like sending that email. I'm like, my palms are sweating. Even if this person is my friend in a real way, I'm just like, Oh God, I don't want to bother them. Like I should I do. Am I really going to send a Facebook message to spike? Like so many people probably hit him up to play at smalls. Like, I don't know. Like, is he going to like, I only hung there 17 times this month. Like, I don't know. Is he going to think that I just want a gig and I'm not really his friend. You know, these things come through my mind and I'm sure to someone else, you know, that's like just moved to New York and is a freshman and, you know, comes to see me play at smalls or something. The idea that I could be freaking out over sending a club an email about booking a gig you know, might seem silly to them, but I've never been able to shake that. Whether it's me walking into a bar on the, on my corner to play a jam session for 50 bucks, or it's me approaching someone from a European jazz festival asking for thousands of dollars, you know, I get the same anxiety about it. And I've just like, I I have like this reoccurring fantasy that I'm going to get a booking agency and they can just do that for me because that is the really the one part of of the one man operation that just makes me lose sleep at night. I I hate asking people for things, you know. And I got to get over it and I, I you know, I've had to. And I need to know my worth. I can't be taking these tours and these gigs that are taking years off my life and I'm not getting the bread that I deserve, you know. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. You're, pre- you're preaching to the choir, man. Like I, that's literally like every time Darren's like, "Yo, hit this cat up." I'm like, "Man, you know, like I don't really know." <laughs> I go through I the same process. Man. Uh, it, I know it's stupid. I know it's irrational, but it's just like that little, you know, that little guy in my brain just he starts yelling at me every time I have to be in that situation. 
as someone who is just meeting you this evening and has been kind of following you online and things like that, it's, it's again, it's like it always blows my mind to have opportunities to talk to cats, to, to hear you like kind of like speak about the inner process when I've only had the opportunity to see what the uh, the final product looks like. And I really, in what you just said, you're hitting cats up for gigs. You're asking European people, you know, you're, you're hitting up smalls and asking to play and things like that. And I think one of the biggest myths that young musicians have is that they're just going to be killing. And then all of a sudden, smalls is going to call you. All of a sudden, North Sea is going to give you a ring. All of a sudden, Jack Winton is going to call and be like, hey, you know, like uh, I follow you on Instagram and I want you to play <laughs> very sex. <laughs> Uh, Matt, could you talk about that too? Like, again, like how maybe we have to be proactive to create these opportunities? Well, you know, the first thing I would say is uh, it doesn't happen all the time, but that does happen for some people. <laughs> and I, I'm, I, you know, I long ago have let go, you know, of the kind of the, the vindictive feelings and the jealousy to say, man, this, this cat got his golden ticket. He hasn't been out of school for five minutes and he's already got this gig. He's on the road. Like he hasn't paid his dues. This cat doesn't hang. Why does he get this gig? You know, all, all of all of those thoughts do cross my mind. And what I say to younger people is that, yeah, like there are actually instances where somebody sees a video and, you know, I have a friend of mine that she's on the road with Jacob Collier right now playing these huge, huge stadiums. And he like saw a video of her on Instagram and DM'd her and was like, Hey, do you want to sing with me and go on tour? And, you know, things like that do, do happen. You know, there are cats that just get chosen. Their number gets called, you know, they get plucked. Um, and you have to be prepared for that moment, for that situation. And if it happens to you, great. But, you know, it's something that uh, my mom is a music theater vocalist to professor at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. And every year, all of these seniors graduate from Carnegie Mellon, which is like the North Carolina Duke of, you know, basketball equivalent of music theater. So it's like, they're the powerhouse. So you have 15 kids graduating every year. They all immediately get signed to an agency, either move to New York or LA. And half of them are booked on a Broadway show like the first week that they move to New York, you know, and they're just, they're off. They're just in Broadway shows for, you know, the next 20 years. And then the other half of those kids can't book anything and end up, you know, doing a spin class and working at a coffee shop and whatever. And you know what? All 15 of those kids are completely equally deserving of that golden ticket. But for whatever reason, these seven got it the first week they moved to New York and the other eight might not get it. They might have to do the spin class for 10 years before they get that call. But, you know, I always just say the only way you lose the game is to quit, you know, and even if it's a slow burn, just, just surviving in New York city in the scene and just showing up and being around, you know, the, the, those kind of like building blocks will, will come. And those are ones that I've like built on a solid foundation. So those aren't the ones that are built on a house of cards that you get a gig right out of school right away. It's your first gig. And you think that the world is your oyster and then every gig ends and that gig's over. And now you haven't been hanging. Nobody knows who you are. You know, you were getting fat off your one gig. It's like, that's not a solid foundation to build. So 
you know, I, I, I always stress to people, you know, you have to be your own advocate. You have to go and hit these people up. You have to hang, you have to like act as though you're the underdog. And then when you get a blessing, you know, when you get an email or a text message or a call from someone and you feel like you're getting some huge opportunity, you know, those are great. And we celebrate those, but you know, the work is done in between those kind of like, you know, miracle gigs that, that come down the pipeline fleetingly, you know, the, the real, the real work is done kind of in the trenches, you know, night after night. And that story reminded me. Um, so I had this gig, this recording gig at, at this random place in, in the city, you know, <laughs> completely random, just so happened they were having uh, auditions for some Broadway show. All right. So I heard 100 people. I counted them. There was probably 500 people in the hallway who I didn't hear and all of them were amazing. Yeah. And I was just like, how do you even, how do you choose? You, you know what I mean? There's one gig, there's 700 people here. It, that, that, and they were all great. I'm talking about like, yo, like some of the yeah. best you ever heard in your life. And that's just the industry that we're in, man. Like everybody is great, but three people are going to get, 1% is going to get the opportunity. So right. you got to figure out how in the hell am I going to stand out? You know, like <laughs> how do I stick out in this crowd? What's unique about me? And, and I think that's the, the secret. And also the biggest secret I learned in business school, man, never meet a stranger, shake everybody's hand, smile, Damn. be nice. You know, absolutely, man. And, and don't quit. I like that too. Cause then the cat with the gig decides to, you know, have a family and move somewhere in the, the Midwest. And all of a sudden a gig opened up and you need to be yeah, available man. to take that opportunity. It really, it really is a, a, a war of attrition, you know, like the long, the longer you stick it out, the, the more chances you have for your lottery number to come up, you know, and there are plenty of examples of that, you know, whether it's acting, you talk about someone like Bradley Cooper that like, you know, didn't get booked on anything until he was 35. And then, you know, he stuck it out for 15 years and finally he, he got his break or even someone like, you know, a cat that people love to talk shit on. But another guy that I look up to immensely that I just saw at the Blue Note last week, Chris Bodie, you know, this cat that's like super commercially successful and popular that like was kind of just a session cat and a jazz player and, and had a, you know, had a couple smooth jazz records until he was 35. You know, he didn't have his big break where he was, you know, playing Carnegie Hall and the Blue Note for a month until he was 35. So the, the, he wasn't just sitting around, you know, graduating from Indiana for 15 years before that. He was working his ass off, you know, and finally, you know, he got his golden ticket, but it took a long time, but he didn't quit, you know. So I'm still waiting for my golden ticket. You know, I haven't quit yet. I'm still, I, I hope it's coming one of these days. Just, just keep on doing <laughs> Like Delphi you say, just keep on doing what you're doing. Right, Greg? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, man, look, I mean, it's, I mean, again, just, just being someone who's been watching you from the periphery, man, you're doing wonderful work. And I feel like, you know, again, it's just a matter of time before we hit that, that golden ticket. And you know what? Sometimes the golden ticket's not all it's cracked up to be. And, and, you know, I think we all need to also just appreciate what we have now too. And dude, it's, it's a blessing to be in our thirties playing music, playing good music with killing cats and uh, making a living doing this. So I'm, I'm, I, that's, I always remind myself about that. Yeah, man. That's, that's, it's always good to keep that perspective, you know, as the, 
the goals shift and every mountain you climb that you, you, there's a higher mountain, but it's good to remember like, Hey, me 10 years ago would have signed on the dotted line to be exactly where I am right now. Even though I feel like today, you know, I'm like dark of that where I'm not, you know, but if you have that perspective, you know, it, it, it helps, it helps because the darkness does come no matter where you are, but it helps you uh, combat it. You know, what do you, what do you do to overcome it? Cause that's, that's huge. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've, I'm, I've gotten more into kind of, you know, mental wellness and, you know, spirituality and things like that. I'm not really a religious person, but I do definitely believe in kind of the alchemy of the science of, of, of energy. And, you know, we all give off an energy. And the first thing is, I think anyone that's in their early thirties, you know, you've seen enough memes on Instagram of like your twenties or where you like make a lot of friends. And then your thirties are where you make that group smaller, but they're the real friends. And like, <laughs> that's kind of like a stupid thing, but it is totally true. Right. Like you're like amassing a network of people when you're younger and then you get older and you're like, you know what? I don't need to be around this energy. I don't want to be, you know, forced to hang out with this cat who makes me feel this way. Mm. Like life is too short. I want to be surrounded by people that, you know, their energy vibes with mine, you know? And so in that way, I feel like my, my tribe of, of cats is so great and supportive. And that's, that fuels everything because, you know, I really have a bunch of good friends in, in this scene that I can, that I can lean on, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, other than that, it's kind of just run of the mill shit. You know, I like to work out cause I, I like how that feels when you finish the gym, you know, and, uh, giving myself some nights off to just watch, watch a football game or watch, watch the Lakers, you know, yeah. and just chill, you know, cause we gotta, if you, if you're in New York, you know, every, that pressure is constantly like, there's a ghost pushing you on the back slightly at all times. Being like, no, no, keep, keep going. And sometimes you have to push back and be like, no, I'm just not doing shit tonight because my body and my brain and my soul needs that. Yeah, absolutely. Not feeling guilty about it. That's beautiful, man. Listen, man, we coming to the end, man. Before we go, I definitely want to give you an opportunity to um, to plug all your stuff. You got a, a new Christmas record. Plug your old record. You sell, uh, what do you, you sell something on your website? I'm sure plungers. <laughs> I sell everything. Just just send me an email, whatever you want. Uh, we can do it here at bennybanakjazz.com. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, I did a joke. I, I still got some of copies of this Christmas CD that I played a gig last night and I sang like White Christmas. And I was like, it's right around the corner, folks. <laughs> Uh, you know, so yeah, I just did a Christmas album. The track that we listened to was from my record um, that came out in February, January, right before the pandemic. So that still is relatively, you know, new. And in fact, I'm still touring some of that music because, you know, we didn't get to tour after the record came out. Um, so, you know, I have some some projects, you know, recording projects that are always coming down the pipeline. but. Um, also working on like a, an, an etude book, you know, some education stuff. And as far as the website, other than the CDs, you know, I also got some t-shirts we're working on rolling out. I think I'm going to do vinyl for my next record. It seems like more people want to buy vinyl these days than who has a CD player, you know, oh, that's, a whole, that's a whole other discussion. Nobody except for jazz radio DJs. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I don't even have a CD player. So. Yeah, man. You know? <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, you know, I make it super, super obnoxiously easy to find where I am next and what I'm doing. So it's bennybenackjazz.com, the IG. I, I live on my Instagram for better or for worse. It's bbjazz, I, I, I. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm if I'm not on the road, I'm always hanging in New York. So always, like you said, n- never want to meet any strangers at these gigs. So if anybody's listening and you want to come find me in New York, you know, I'll give you a, a handshake or a an elbow, you know, whatever, whatever the current CDC guidelines are, you know. <laughs> <laughs> if you email me, I'll give you uh, Benny's phone number and his social <laughs> number. So just- there you go, there you go. <laughs> I'm on all. I'm on ten dating apps. So if anyone wants oh, to set, hey. set their location oh, to New York, get your radius. Wait a minute, radius set. <laughs> Find Benny on OK Cupid. That's the- <laughs> there you go. That's a good one. Come on, OK yeah, Cupid. That's how I met my wife, man. Hello. <laughs> All right, y'all. Uh, on that note, Benny, <laughs> man, it's been a pleasure, pleasure, pleasure getting to, to hang with you this evening, man. I, w- I wish you the the very best, and, and hope we get a chance to play and, and hang again soon. Yeah, thank thank you so much for having me, cats, and uh, love love what you guys are doing, and uh, keep it up, man. Keep it going. Thanks, bro. All right, y'all. This is the Working Artist Project. My name is Darian Douglas. My name is Greg Ajid, and we'll catch you all on the next episode. Later.